Hey, it's great to see you this morning. Thank you for uh, making the effort during spring break. I think we've lost some people in the process, including our uh, normal teacher here, and uh, he needs a break as much as everybody else today, so it's a privilege to fill in for him and be a pinch hitter um, this morning as we continue our study. This morning we're going to be coming to a section that uh, I'm going to need you to think carefully with me through, okay? Um, I think you've found along with me that uh, Hebrews is one of those books that really requires you to press down and really, you know, apply yourself as the arguments and as the narrative unfolds. And we've actually come in, a, in our study in Hebrews to a very crucial point. Um, as the, the uh, background that the writer to Hebrews provides for these dear people um, kind of comes to a head in chapters 9 and 10. And so uh, we're going to be looking at a section today that uh, is an uncomfortable one, and we'll just admit that right up front. It's called uh, a difficult passage, okay? There are several of these in Hebrews, and there are uh, a number in the Bible itself. And when I say difficult, what I mean is that uh, good people and godly people have disagreements over what the meaning of the text would be in those cases. And the section we're looking at today is one of those. And so we'll do our best to try to make it clear as we just walk through and allow the text to speak to us. I think sometimes it's good just to kind of back off and get the big picture of where we are right now. And so what we're reading, again, for all of us just to kind of reset, was written about 40 years following the crucifixion and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, okay? So we're in really the first generation or generation and a half of New Covenant Christianity. The readers are primarily Jewish people who at some point have come to faith in Christ. And um, what that does, among other things in their lives, is that it makes them outcasts to their brothers in Israel, okay? They, they would have been completely shut out, not only from um, theological life, but uh, from family life. They would have been completely disowned and alienated. So these dear brothers and sisters who would have come to faith as Jewish people, um, were really out there on the edges. Um, they would have been, as well as the other Christians at this point in history, persecuted by the Romans on top of their difficulties as Jewish Christians. And uh, what happens is the church had become their family in the most real sense. And so the writer at this point uh, has been very carefully working through um, the narrative in demonstrating that Jesus, the one in whom they had placed their faith, is God, is God in the flesh. And through the book of Hebrews, as we've studied it together, the writer is very careful about synthesizing and bridging from the Old Testament law that they would have been very familiar with, to this entirely new, new covenant relationship through Jesus Christ. Um, 
And so all, by this point, as we've studied together, all of the covenant promises that the writer has talked about, and every purpose of the law, the old covenant law, and all those shadows that we see represented in um, the sacrificial system, he has dealt with those things. And what he's done is to say, all of those things have been completely and finally and forever uh, gathered up in the redemptive work of Christ. And he comes to that point right here in chapters 9 and 10. It's kind of the pinnacle of everything that he's been teaching to these uh, Hebrew brothers and sisters. And the section that George looked at with us last week, once again, it just it, it reaffirms the, uh, the centrality of this message um, to these Jewish believers. If you look back in your uh, text there in chapter 10, where George was last week. Look at, just look at 10.22. The writer says, Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an unclean, con in evil conscience, and our bodies washed with pure water, and let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. That's an important uh, statement as we move into the section today because at this point, a critical moment, some of these dear Hebrew men and women who've been professing faith in Christ are starting to look back. And they're starting to say, maybe I'll go back to the law. Maybe I'll go back to the old covenant, the things I know, the things my family have. I might go back. And there were even some who at this point were in fact prepared to say, I, I think I'm going to cash it in. I'm going out of here. I'm done. And at that critical point, the writer of the Hebrews has some very um, strong, sometimes hard things to say, but they're actually encouraging as well. So let's look at the text for today. We're looking at Hebrews 10, verse 26 and following. Would you follow with me? <clears throat> For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two witnesses. How much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God, has profaned the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and has outraged the Spirit of grace. For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But recall the former days when... Right after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings, sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your own property, since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which is a great reward. 
for you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come, and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thanks be to God. Father, help us this morning in what is not a comfortable passage to read and difficult to think through. And uh, as we do, Lord, we pray that you would hear, we would hear your voice. Speak to us by your spirit and Speak to us in our lives in the 21st century, for Christ's sake. Amen. Amen. Well, again, um, even as we read that text, there's not a lot of unicorns and rainbows and, uh, you know, puppy dogs in there. That, that's some hard talk. And um, I think part of the concern that we have in dealing correctly with this is that from this section, especially from the first couple of verses, um, we need to acknowledge that there has been some very harmful teaching that has been leveraged on sensitive souls right from this text. Um, From this text, young believers have been told over the years that if they continue in sin, they can no longer be forgiven. Uh, some people have been told from this text that if a Christian dies with unconfessed sin, they can't possibly enter into heaven. Um, and the, just the sheer guilt and shame and moralism and legalism that, uh, that presses into the life of a person ends up driving people away from this bad and unbiblical understanding of these issues and pretty much drives them away from the church as well. So I'm real concerned today that, that we understand clearly what the writer is saying to these dear Hebrew brothers and what he's not saying and how important that is, okay? All right, uh, follow there on your outline. And, and by the way, on your outline there, you'll notice that it's a one-pager, okay? That's probably uh, expressive of the fact that I write small, and you probably don't. So if you need to take notes, you're going to have to be careful about where you're writing there today. But uh, it's all there on the front page. Um, Let's begin to look at the text there, and we'll begin there, verse 26. There's some key words. Just look at that verse. For if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. All right, let's let's think about that. The, The word deliberately is really important. Um, It just means willingly, intentionally, um, a dominant, uh, continual pattern of life. So the text is saying, if we are sinning willingly, intentionally, dominantly, as a dominant pattern of our lives, and he goes on, after receiving the knowledge of the truth, People stop that and they say, wait a minute, whoa, 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 whoa. Are we talking about Christians losing their salvation here? Somebody who's sinning all the time and who has been exposed to the knowledge of the truth. It sounds like a Christian to me. Is somebody losing his salvation? 
and it says that person no longer remain, it's, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sin in the life of that person. Now, let's, let's take this apart and make sure we get it clearly. Um, has anybody sinned in the last 24 hours? Yeah. Uh, the last five hours? Maybe we woke up sinning this morning. We certainly woke up sinners this morning. But what we want to do is differentiate between a style of life that is dominated as a pattern by sin versus the idea of the fact that we're going to be sinning in our lives as Christians. We stumble. We fall down. Sometimes we stay down for a while. We do that, but it's not the dominant pattern of our lives. The writer says, we're talking about a dominant pattern here. If a person is deliberately in a pattern of intentional, repeated, constant sin, after having received the knowledge of the truth, and you say, whoa, that sounds like a Christian to me too. Not necessarily. (laughs) Does knowledge of the truth make a person a Christian? The devil knows truth. The devil is as orthodox as any of us or more. He knows more the reality of God and his revelation than we ever will. And by no means does that make him a Christian. Um, Churches, unfortunately, are full of people who are prepared to make intellectual assent to the propositions of the gospel. Okay? They would not disagree with what's going to be preached on Sunday morning. They would fully agree with it. They would give assent to it. And, um, you know, when we repeat the creeds together, they understand what those creeds are saying. And uh, there's, there's an intellectual engagement. However, that kind of exposure to the knowledge of the truth is not a saving engagement. It does not... that kind of engagement does not include repentance, somebody coming to Christ in faith. You can acknowledge truth without engaging Christ as Savior. And that's what he's talking about here. And then he talks about, in, in the case of a person who is sinning constantly, repeatedly, as a pattern of life, as a dominant pattern of life, and who knows at least intellectually the propositions of truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Now, people say, does that mean if I die in my sleep and I haven't confessed my sins, I won't be admitted to heaven? No, that's not what that's saying. Um, For someone who has no living, growing relationship with Christ and has turned away from Christ, and uh, the truth of the gospel, there is no more um, sacrifice, as he says, for sin. What he's saying there is in light of what the writer to Hebrews has been teaching, that Jesus is our Passover lamb. He's the ultimate sacrifice. We just got done reading this earlier in chapter 10. He's the final sacrifice. And for somebody who rejects Christ's final sacrifice for sin is to essentially say there are no no more options for that person. There's nowhere else to go. Um, 
No options for dealing with what is the terminal disease of sin in our lives. And if we reject the only God-given remedy, the only cure, the blood of Christ, if we reject that continually as a pattern, he says, there's nowhere else to go. You're on your own. That's a scary place to be. And it's a scary bit of of, uh, language for people who are right on the edge. And uh, we're in danger of, uh, of leaving. Now, at this point, it's always help, helpful to uh, be able to go to Reverend Dr. Calvin and see what he has to say about this, you know? Kind of our helpful arbiter in difficult issues because he's usually going to guide us back into the middle of the road. And so as Pastor Calvin deals with this verse and this, this whole idea, listen to what he says. And the question is, to, who is this verse speaking about? <clears throat> Calvin, the apostle describes not those who fall away in any kind of way, but those who forsake the church and separate themselves from Christ. He's not dealing here with this or that kind of sin, but he is exposing by name those who withdraw themselves out of their own accord from the fellowship of the church. Here's a key line. There is a great difference between individual lapses and universal desertion of this kind, which makes for a total falling away from the grace of Christ. That's so helpful. Calvin distinguishes between brief lapses of sin in our lives, which are true, and a universal desertion of the grace of Christ, which he says is being addressed here by the author. Okay? He goes on. He says that there is no offering less for those who reject the death of Christ because such rejection does not come from some particular offense but from a total rejection of the faith. The apostle is therefore directing his attention not only on those who desert Christ in their unbelief but also those who deprive themselves of the benefit of his death. Okay, so what we're talking about here are not temporary lapses, the things that we're going to do today, probably, sometime. That we are constantly being washed by the blood of Christ as we come to him in repentance for. But we're talking about somebody who has made a complete departure, a total rejection of the faith, and has walked away, okay? And for that person, the author says, there's nowhere else to go. There's nowhere else to go. Especially painful for these Hebrew professors of faith. Okay? Difficult talk, but it's important to to be able to distinguish between those issues because we're not, therefore, talking about somebody who um, has been told that if they continue to sin, they can't be forgiven anymore. Or somebody who thinks that if they go to bed and die overnight and haven't confessed their sins, they're not going to be admitted into God's kingdom. We're not talking about those things. We're talking about somebody who has totally departed and walked away from the faith. And he, he goes on to elaborate here. There are some effects of this desertion. And so you look at verse 27 through 29. These are scary things as well. 
There no longer remains a sacrifice for sin, but a fearful expectation of judgment and a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries. Man, that's, that's strong language. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the evidence of two or three witnesses. That's in the law. Leviticus says that, that if there was a, a, an apostate from the old covenant law, that if there were two or three witnesses that were willing to testify on, the, on behalf of the fact that their friend, Mr. X, has departed from the law of Moses, it was a capital offense, death penalty. And so the author here is arguing from the lesser to the greater, and he says, hey, anyone who's set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the authority of two witnesses. 29, how much worse punishment do you think will be deserved by the one who has trampled underfoot the Son of God. Now, he says three things there. You'll see it on your notes. He says three things. Trampled underfoot the Son of God. That, the word trampled there is a good one as it's um, translated there in your ESV Bible. It has to do with stomping on, trampling underfoot, um, treating with utmost contempt the Son of God. We're talking about the person of Christ here. In the, uh, in the Middle Eastern culture, <clears throat> your feet and your shoes are real important. Um, and the Bible actually has a number of references to that. But uh, you'll notice sometimes on the news when in the Middle East there's a conflict and somebody, uh, some group of people is angry about one of their leaders or the opposing leaders, you'll see film of people with a picture of that person, they'll take off their shoes and they'll beat on him, okay? They're not just look for, looking for something, something to beat the picture with. They're expressing something by taking off their shoe and beating. It is an expression of utmost contempt in the Middle Eastern culture to step on something or to hit them with your shoe, okay? And that, he says, is what has happened here in the life of people who have departed. They have trampled underfoot. They have stomped on. They have treated with greatest contempt the Son of God. And then he goes on. And they have profaned the blood of the covenant. Brothers, we have just spent ten chapters talking about blood and the covenant, right? Have you ever read such a bloody portion of Scripture? I mean, we, there's blood here, blood there, blood everywhere. Blood sacrifices. And the point that the uh, author has been making all along is those, those are representative. They're pointing towards something. And here in chapter 10, he's told us, yeah, they're pointing to the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate Passover lamb, whose blood is sufficient for our salvation. These people have profaned that blood of the covenant. And um, so that, when you say the word covenant to a Hebrew person, we're dealing with some very significant language here. And what it's saying is they've rejected the new covenant sacrifice of Christ to go back to the old covenant blood sacrifices of the Mosaic law. It's a retrograde move. So, trampled underfoot the Son of God, profaned the blood of the covenant, 
And then finally, outraged the spirit of grace. What a lovely phrase. It's a beautiful description of the Holy Spirit. And on top of everything else, this kind of rejection is an outraging or a rejecting or a blaspheming, if you will, of the Holy Spirit himself. The one, the Holy Spirit, the one who is the agent of our new birth. He's the one who causes us to come into a new birth in Christ. He's the one who is the source of our sanctification. He's the one who is the power for our living. He's the one who brings to us and applies the very blessings of Christ into our lives. And as we come to the sacraments and we're fed around the Lord's table, the Holy Spirit is applying those blessings to our lives. And he says, the one who's rejected Jesus has outraged the Holy Spirit. He's rejected and blasphemed the Holy Spirit as well. So, um, these, these are difficult words, and they're strong words, and they're meant to be that way as he addresses these who are on the edge or have stepped back from the faith. And then he concludes there in this section, in those last two verses, 30 and 31. It says, For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of a living God. <clears throat> and so he tells these dear folks, the Lord, the Lord we know is righteous in his judgment. And he will righteously avenge his holy name. And those who reject him have every reason to be fearful. It doesn't get much harder than that, guys. Now, what we're saying is this, just in summary here. That's hard stuff. And so what we're saying are two things then. One, that the purpose of this section is not to make those who are trusting in Christ and growing in their relationship with him worry about some time falling away. That's not the purpose of this section. Rather, the purpose is to warn those who are either thinking about or who have deliberately turned away from Christ at this point. And that they are in do so doing, cutting themselves off from the benefits of Christ's death, there's no further sacrifice available to them. And they're on their own. It's, that's scary talk, but it's very necessary. Now, at this point, uh, we need some good news. And thankfully, he turns the corner here and begins to give encouragement behind that kind of warning. And it's so, it's very important as we read these kinds of passages to know that God, what God is doing is he's, he's setting both of these things before us. He's setting warnings and encouragements in the same context, okay? And uh, we need to be careful about how we understand them and, and apply them to our lives. So the warnings, now we come to the encouragements. And that begins for us in verse 32 and following. And what he's going to say to these dear folks is, hey, now listen, you're going to have to hold tight. And the way that we're going to do that is, first of all, to look back. All of you who've, who've professed faith in Christ out of Judaism, let's just take a minute and let's look back and remember some things about our lives. So, verse 32. 
Recall the former days when, after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. He says, hey, remember what it was like for you when you first came to faith. And the word is beautiful there. He says, when you were first enlightened. It's actually the word to turn on the lights. (laughs) And so he says, remember the time in your life when you first came to faith and the Lord turned on the lights in your life? Well, let's think about that, he says. Let's remember some things about that time. And guys, you know what? It's a good thing to do. Every once in a while, just sit and think back about what it was like when you first came to faith. And hopefully, it's an encouragement then. Because what we can do is look back and say, man, I was a sad case back then. I I thought I was sad right now. But I remember those times. And I knew nothing. And maybe you were out of a background with no orientation to Christ at all. And you can look back and say, God has been so faithful in my life. Look what he's done. Look at all this grace pouring into my life since then. So he's, he's calling on his Hebrew brethren here to do a little of that. Remember what it was like when you first came to faith. Verse 32, he says, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings. Right out of the box, it was hard for you. And the word um, endure there is the word athlesis. Okay? Sound like anything? Athlesis, athletic. It's that idea that um, it's, it's actually taken from the ancient games. And the idea probably comes from events like boxing and wrestling. It has to do with fighting and conflict and struggle. You know? You all went through some athlesis right out of the box as you came to faith. You endured that hard struggle and suffering. Verse 33 says, and then you stood in partnership with others. This is beautiful too. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction themselves, and sometimes being partners with those who were so treated. So he says, sometimes it was you, and sometimes it was your buddies. And it was that when it was them, you stood with them. You didn't leave them hanging. You didn't split. But you stood in, and the word is koinonia. You stood in fellowship, partnership with your brothers when they were being persecuted as well. Um, I, on this note, just a couple of weeks ago, we had a missions conference here at Second. And one of the key speakers was a gentleman who ministers in China. Came from six generations of Christians in China, okay? And he, he is ministering there in the, in the ministry of planting churches. And I got so convicted listening to this guy, I, I, I'm still not quite over it. I hope I don't get over it. But he said one of their church planting strategies is persecution. What they do is they expect it. And when it comes, the impact of persecution is to plant seeds for new uh, churches and new believers. Persecution actually works to their advantage. And I'm thinking, I am the most lightweight uh, Christian possible. I can't even imagine that. If we had a church planting seminar here and said, okay, 
Top of the list, persecution. You really want to plant a church? Let's stir up some persecution here. See what God does. That's actually their plan. That's their strategy. To see God plant seeds of their blood that brings fruit for the gospel. And I'm thinking, what a lightweight I am. Living over here in the West, in the, in the United States of America, in beautiful Memphis, Tennessee, and we're never persecuted. We don't know what that's about. And I'm just talking about my own angst here. God help us. But these dear people stood in partnership with their brothers when it was happening. And then verse 34, and you had compassion on those in prison. I'm not sure how that works. Some commentators say they actually had access to their uh, friends in prison. They could go there. They could bind up their wounds. They could bring them food. They could minister to them, okay? And so when someone was actually in prison, they didn't just leave them there. They actually went there. Um, And so, once again... uh, (laughs) It's just, it, it is such a humbling thing to th- think of that happening because we know nothing. We know nothing about this kind of um, relationship together as b- believers and in Christ. Um, and then he goes on to say, and you endured confiscation of your property with joy. So as part of the process of them coming to faith, there's a direct correlation to them coming to faith. Somebody came in and just cleaned out all their stuff, too. So not only did they lose their identity as Hebrews, their families, probably whatever else they had as as means of living, somebody came in and took all their stuff, too. They had nothing. And they were getting beat up all over the place as well. And he says, look, you endured even the confiscation of your property and then this beautiful phrase, and I think I put a little star by it there in your, in your notes. You endured all that because you knew that you yourselves had a better possession, an abiding one. So beautiful. It goes back to Jesus. Matthew 6.33, seek you first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I'll take care of the rest. Right? In Matthew 7, he says, look, check yourself. Your heart is where your treasure is. Your heart follows your treasure. And if your treasure is the stuff, and your stuff gets confiscated, what happens to your treasure? Okay? But he says this lovely thing. You you yourselves knew that you had a better possession an abiding one. Just across the page in chapter 11, we're going to learn about that as we, as we dip into chapter 11. Look across the page there in chapter 11, verse 13. He talks about all these heroes. And in 13 it says, they all acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. You know, one of the great issues in our lives today is the issue of immigration and exiles and people without a country. And as the writer talks about the heroes of our faith 
in chapter 11, he says, they were strangers and exiles on earth, not just from their country, but living on this planet, they were exiles. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. They weren't just looking for a new plot of ground. They weren't just looking for somewhere to emigrate to. They were looking for a homeland. And in verse 16, chapter 11, as it is, they desire a better country, a heavenly one. These dear people had a big horizon in mind. They were exiles as long as they live, and they die exiles because they have a better country in mind. And that's what the writer here in chapter 10 is saying. Look, you knew that you have a better possession, an abiding one, than anything you can put your hands on. We're going to a, a better country, a country with, he says, foundations, whose builder and maker is God. That's where we're going. And meanwhile, we're just a bunch of exiles. We're all exiles in our faith. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, says to them, look, y'all, be encouraged. And here's one way you can do that. Look back, look at what, what it was like when you first came to faith, and remember how faithful God has been in your life right up to this moment and how his grace pours out to you constantly. And then one more section. He says, now, you've looked back. Here, I also want you to do this. Look forward. Let's look forward here. And I want you <clears throat> to have one thing in mind as you move forward in your faith. He says endurance is the issue. So look at verse 35. Therefore, don't throw away your confidence, which has a great reward, for you have need of endurance. Guys, as we move forward, he says, we need to focus on the big picture, the long road, okay? At any given point in our Christian lives, when we encounter difficulty, trial, tragedy, the stuff, that, the stuff of life, we can be tempted to say, man, <clears throat> I think I'm just about done with this. Because where's God? I've just lost my child. I've just had a cancer prognosis. <clears throat> I've had a, whatever the tragedy may be. And he says, no, 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 no. Don't worry about the points on the line. Look at the line. Have the big picture in mind. And what you need to be doing is thinking in terms of endurance along the line. <clears throat> um, it's... it's the truth of Philippians 1.6. He who began a good work in you will continue it to the day of Christ Jesus. We're on the long line, and Jesus is working us toward an end. Okay? <clears throat> and he says, when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. What's the will of God? That's a big concept. And I think over and over and over, what we if we want to make it really simple and just keep to the basics, when we talk about the will of God, what we're talking about is just obey, okay? Just obey him. Dear Elizabeth Elliot, you may be familiar with that name, and if you've heard her or read some of her writings, she always gets back to this. If you want to break it all down and make it real simple, the will of God 
involves just obeying him. Trust, obey, and do the next thing. Elizabeth Elliot's wisdom. And <clears throat> I can't tell you how many times my wife and I have gone back to that phrase in our lives when stuff comes along, and it comes along regularly, as you know. Hey, trust, obey, do the next thing. He says, hey, do the will of God that you may receive what is promised. And then he completes it in verses 38 and 39, quoting from the prophet Habakkuk. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and not delay, but my righteous one shall live by faith. Trust, obey, do the next thing. And then he finally concludes in verse 39, but we are not those who shrink back. Guys, we're not quitters. We're not the ones who punch out under pressure. Um, but we're the ones who, he says, have faith and preserve their souls. And you say, what, is, what does that faith look like? How can, I, how can I begin to understand and get deeper in that? And hold on, because as we move into chapter 11, one of the greatest chapters in the whole revelation of Scripture, we're going to find over and over and over what it means to do that, to have faith and live by faith. Can't wait. This is going to be a great time. Um, let, me, let me conclude like this. I, last time I was with you, um, I read from a book called Make Your Bed, okay? And you may not remember this. This is by Admiral William McRaven. And uh, he served as a Navy SEAL for 37 years and gave a speech at the University of Texas in 2012, a commencement speech, where he gave 10 principles based on his experience as a SEAL for how these young graduates can change the world. And somebody said, that, that is so unbelievable, um, you need to put it in a book, and so he did. And uh, the book's called Make Your Bed. And at the conclusion of it, um, he, he's telling a little bit about his experience as a SEAL. And listen to this. He says, I've been a Navy SEAL for 37 years. But it all began when I left uh, University of Texas for basic SEAL training in Coronado, California. Basic SEAL training is six months of long, tortuous runs in soft sand, midnight swims in the cold water off San Diego, obstacle courses, unending calisthenics, days without sleep, and always being cold, wet, and miserable. Sounds like fun. It is six months of being constantly harassed by professionally trained warriors who seek to find the weak of mind and body and eliminate them from ever becoming a, a Navy SEAL. And then he goes on to say this, and, and I'll, I'll just read you this. Every morning in basic SEAL training, my actually, let me fast forward past that. Yeah, let me, let me read you just this last section, okay? He says, in SEAL training, there's a bell, a bell that hangs in the center of the compound 
for the students to see. All you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Now, as they began, he says there were 150 of them in his class. All you have to do to quit is ring the bell. Ring the bell, and you won't any longer have to wake up at 5 in the, in the morning. Ring the bell, and you no longer have to do the freezing cold swims. Ring the bell, and you have no longer to do the runs, the obstacle course, the PT, and you no longer have to endure the hardships of the training. Just ring the bell. And those instructors are constantly standing around saying, forget it, give it up, ring the bell, ring the bell. You can't take this, ring it. Um, and it turns out that in his case, six months later, there were 33 men left graduating out of a class of 150 that didn't ring the bell. And he says, if you want to change the wor world, don't ever, ever ring the bell. All right, that's, that's very inspiring on a human level. What we have is the enemy of our souls constantly screaming into our ears, Stokey, you don't have to go through this. Ring the bell. Punch out. You don't need this. Give it up. Ring the bell. And dear brothers, the writer of the Hebrews says, don't you ever, ever ring the bell. But more than that, what he says is, you can't ring the bell. Know why? You're being held by the Father and the Son and the blood of Jesus, which holds and binds you to him eternally. You can't ring the bell. Endure. Trust. Obey. Do the next thing. That's what he tells our brothers in the first century. He's speaking to us today. Don't ring the bell. But if we're in Christ, we can't ring the bell. Just a, just a word. You'll find on the back of your outline some helpful um, notes that I provided about this whole business of losing your salvation. We're, we're not, we're not going to go there at all. But the Westminster Confession has some really important things to say that might surprise you if you've not read these. So I just encourage you to go home and maybe in your quiet, quiet time, just read through these sections and listen to the words of Hebrews 10 speak to you. And at the bottom of the page, there are some passages that are encouragements to you in the process of enduring, okay? Don't ring the bell, but we can't in Christ.